This is Someone Like Me, the official podcast of Ancora, Tennessee. I'm Leslie Eiler-Thompson. If you've listened to this show before, you know that the mission of this organization is to nurture survivor healing and strategically combat human trafficking in the state of Tennessee. We do that through training of frontline professionals, aftercare services for minor and adult victims of trafficking, as well as advocacy at the state level and prevention programming. Because of the work we do, we're often asked about trafficking when current events occur related to the subject. With recent movies and news stories covering the subject of human trafficking, we brought together three experts for a panel discussion webinar, one of which is a trafficking survivor herself, to speak to the nature of child trafficking in Tennessee. This special bonus episode is hosted by Ancora Tennessee's CEO, Kelly Carey, with guests Centoya Brown-Long, the Commissioner of the Department of Children's Services and former Ancora TN CEO, Margie Quinn, and Jeremy Lofquist from the TBI. At the end of the discussion, I'll be back with some practical ways you can get involved in preventing this crime, as well as ways to help survivors thrive as they heal and build lives outside of trafficking. I'm so thrilled to introduce you to our counter-trafficking experts that are joining us today for this important discussion. We have Sintoya Brown-Long, who is the director and co-founder of the JFAM Foundation. We have Commissioner Margie Quinn, who is the commissioner of the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. And then we also have with us Jeremy Lofquest, who is the assistant special agent in charge of TBI's human trafficking unit. So to kick off our panel, I'm going to start with Sintoya, and I'm going to ask if each of our panelists can explain your role and what got you into anti-trafficking work. So we'll start with Sintoya and then move to Commissioner Quinn and then Jeremy. Hi. Um, so actually my role and, you know, the whole anti-trafficking thing really began with Encora, which used to be in Slavery, Tennessee, because it was a commercial that was run as part of a public awareness initiative that talked about what trafficking is. And I never would have equated my own experiences to what was commonly considered trafficking, but they really opened my eyes to the realities of it and what it actually looks like. And so that just filled me with this passion to educate other people, especially young people, because that public education is is such a big part of young people actually identifying themselves. There could have been a million people lined up to tell me what happened with me um, was trafficking. It was not something of my own volition, but until I actually recognized that myself and until I could actually look at the reality of it and align it with my own experience, I would have never been receptive to actually healing from that um, and to moving past that. And so that's why I've just become very impassioned about that. Um, I run an organization where we work with young people to educate them and then also encourage them to use their voice, because I think their voice is the most important voice in this 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 whole fight. And so I know we'll talk about it a little later on, but, you know, that's one of the initiatives that I've been working on. And it was largely inspired by In Slavery's own initiative. My name is Margie Quinn, and I'm uh, currently the commissioner of the Department of Children's Services. And thanks, Kelly, for having us today. What a great, uh, great timing on this this webinar. I am in a unique position having 
been in Jeremy's position for about 11 years, having been in Kelly's position for a little over three years. But it was in doing the work at TBI as an assistant special agent in charge around 2008, 2009, I was uh, over the Missing Children's Clearinghouse. And I began to understand during that time period that some of Tennessee's missing children were being trafficked. And I have said um, for some years now that once you know that, you can never not know that again. And uh, the director at the time allowed me to do something about that. And the legislature at the time sort of commissioned a study to be, to be conducted across the state where we both quantified and qualified trafficking across all 95 counties. And you can still find that research report on TBI's outreach website, ithastostop.com. And what we were really looking at was um, the impact of trafficking on children and youth. And I think everyone's eyes were open tremendously to the how much was occurring, where it was occurring, how it was occurring. And that, I think, changed the trajectory of kind of everything I was doing at TBI. And that's what led me into the work that I was doing then, what I did after TBI, and some of the current efforts um, that I'm engaged in at DCS. And so I'm, I'm excited to talk about that as the webinar continues. I'm Jeremy Lofquist. I am the current assistant special agent in charge over the TBI's human trafficking unit. Uh, we've got uh, about seven agents working right now across the state uh, in every uh, grand region uh, to combat trafficking. I took this position in about 2018 and every day is a learning experience as uh, Commissioner Quinn said, there's uh, a lot that you learn that you can't unlearn, but I think part of that uh, drives what we as a team are trying to do and what we're what we do with a lot of our partnerships with Ancora and DCS and some of the other partnerships we have out there because uh, we look at this common goal and look at what what we're up against right but that drives I think every one of us especially on my team there's a lot of passion with it so I came from a criminal investigative background uh, before that down in Chattanooga, had worked a few cases with a trafficking agent down there. And uh, once we moved to Nashville, uh, this position opened up and, and it just really seemed like something that was really going to make an impact, right? Um, and so that's kind of where I, I ended up trying to get into this. Plus, I had a lot of buy-in uh, with the Bureau uh, as a whole, especially the leadership at the time and definitely the leadership now. So that that makes it a little easier on our side being a state agency. <laughs> so when you've got buy-in from the top down, right, that makes, makes a lot of help uh, there for us. So uh, I'm excited to be on this. I think this is great. Thank you for inviting us to the table. And uh, I'm really looking forward to, to moving through some of these topics today. That's wonderful. And I think that what you said, Jeremy, is so true. We're all here because we're so passionate about this issue. And um, we work so collaboratively and closely together that it really takes all of these perspectives to make a difference to combat human trafficking. Uh, and, you know, the first question that I want to move into is really 
going to set the stage on why we wanted to have this discussion at this timely moment. Um, there's a lot of discussion about what human trafficking is or what it looks like right now in public discourse. A lot of confusion, a lot of myths. Um, so I'm hoping that we can just start, um, Commissioner Quinn, if you wouldn't mind just starting by defining human trafficking. When we say human trafficking, what do we mean when we're when we're using those words? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. Um, I, I always like to start with just what the legal definition is, um, because I think that tells us exactly what it is and what it's not. Um, when a person over the age of 18 engages in a commercial sex act by means of force, fraud, or coercion, that is human trafficking. So you have a person that's over the age of 18, they engage in a commercial sex act, and there's use of force, fraud, or, or coercion, um, then you have human trafficking. So a commercial sex act is a sex act that occurs when something of value is exchanged. So value can be money, guns, drugs. It can also be shelter. It can be food. It can be clothing. Anything of value in exchange for sex makes it a commercial sex act. So when a person is under the age of 18 and engages in a commercial sex act, the government does not need to prove force or fraud or coercion. Just that a person is under the age of 18 and a commercial sex act occurs. So think about um, that shelter, that clothing, that food, um, any of those things in exchange for sex makes it a commercial sex act. And when that person is under the age of 18, that makes it a human trafficking act. So if a mother um, allows a landlord to have sex with her 14 year old daughter in exchange for rent money, that makes it a commercial sex act. That makes it a human trafficking act. Um, and you can charge both the landlord and the mother the statute in Tennessee, as well as federally, allows you to charge both the buyer in the act as well as the seller in the act. And that's where um, I think these, these statutes are very um, interesting because, um, as you can see um, in the news, uh, the TBI has been very, very active, um, starting with the unit when I ran it back in 2015, um, we have done a lot of what we call demand reduction, um, proactive operations. Um, the Bureau has continued to run those all across the state. Um, and what we're really looking at is trying to reduce the demand for children um, as well as adults, but going after the individuals who are out there intentionally looking for children to purchase. Um, we want to try to reduce the demand for, for this uh, for this product, if you will, um, because under our statute, as well as the federal statute, you can charge the buyer as a trafficker under our statute. Um, and I think that's a really important um, uh, piece of information that we want to make sure the public understands. Um, and that's how I would really define trafficking. That's super helpful. And I think the details are so helpful too, so that everyone knows um, when we're giving examples, like the one that you gave, that really crystallizes and puts some of those like federal and state definitions um, that makes it clear for everyone to understand what we're talking about. 
Uh, as we move on, I'd love to talk about um, the role of media. So popular media places a large emphasis on trafficking uh, with strangers or children being kidnapped. Uh, these are not the experiences that we see at Encora on a regular basis. Can you tell us a little bit about who's facilitating trafficking in the state of Tennessee? Who are those traffickers? And we'll start, Jeremy, with you. What are you seeing at TBI? So I, I think, uh, like you said, media, right? They're, they're pushing the kidnapping, the white vans pulling up and, and snatching kids or women and, and running them overseas and that kind of thing. Like you said, that is not, not at all the norm. Uh, here in Tennessee, it's a very, uh, very, very small percentage of what we're seeing. Um, I think kind of jump into the second part of the question with who are the traffickers is a good place to go before we get into kind of um, how trafficking is kind of happening in the state. But really, uh, like Margie touched on, you have both buyers and sellers that are considered traffickers, right? And either one of those groups can literally be anybody. It's not just the shady guy that lives down the street that um, nobody ever sees, but there's cars in and out all the time. It can be a high school coach. It can be some one part of a religious group. It can be a CEO. It can be um, homeless people. Uh, it, it can be any of that kind of demographic, right? It's it's across the board. And on the buyer side, it's the same, kind of the same thing. We see it completely across the board, every from blue collar to white collar and everywhere in between, right? Um, now, how trafficking is kind of happening in Tennessee, what we've seen more and more, uh, especially uh, probably in, in the last three or four years, it, it was there before, but it's really jumped as very internet business driven. Um, it's right out there in, in the regular uh, internet sphere. It's not the dark web and all the scary corners of the internet, right? Um, it, it's, it's there, it's happening on social media. It's happening uh, through all these chat rooms and then Obviously, uh, some the known commercial sex uh, advertisement sites too, and what we're seeing is our vulnerable populations, specifically runaways, and you know these these children that are in rough situations to begin with are kind of getting funneled into situations that are allowing these traffickers, these master manipulators, as I like to call them. Uh, in into this um, horrible situation, right? They're providing something that they need, whether that's love, attention, food, money, shelter, whatever it is, transportation, all of that. And then at some point, they're manipulated into providing these commercial sex acts uh, and then not getting anything in return, right? They're becoming a product and being used. So we're seeing a lot of that especially in the juvenile realm, realm, but that's also happening a lot with, with adults too. Uh, I think there's a ton of focus on the children. I think there needs to be a ton of focus on, you know, the, these vulnerable children, but there's also vulnerable adults in, in this realm too, that um, probably needs more media coverage. Right. Uh, so we're, 
we're seeing a lot of, a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of it happen uh, gradually and, you know, this manipulation in general. Uh, so then uh, we're trying to focus on, on the children in order to kind of stem the, the flow of these kids into those traffickers hands. Right. And that's where, I mean, having commissioner Quinn over there, at DCS with her new unit she started up and all that has just been so pivotal in, in our our ability to to kind of get after this so and that's just that's the quick down and dirty five minute version I'm sure um Commissioner Quinn or, or Centoya will have definitely more to add to that thank you so much no that was really helpful um I'll allow Centoya or Commissioner Quinn to add to that I I think that the thing that most people are surprised when I'm out speaking in the community is when I share how often it's really um, trusted individuals that are facilitating trafficking, you know, um, intimate partners, caregivers, landlords, employers, people who have that trusted relationship. Um, and I think that the community is usually pretty shocked when, I, when I'm sharing that and during training. Centoya or Commissioner Quinn, do you have anything to add? Yeah, um, I think like when we're talking about media, like you see the girl who's bound up and, you know, Jeremy talked about, you know, people who are being thrown into the back of vans, things like that. The white van that's picking people off the streets. You hear all that stuff and it's really does more harm than good because people see that and they think, oh, well, I'm informed. I know what this really is. I like to talk about trafficking in the form of exploitation because then it really does cover what it actually looks like. So you have young people who are on the streets or who are in these environments where they have different needs or they're susceptible to a lot of this, this glamorization of this certain lifestyle, right? Um, and that's really where I put my focus into these young people because those are the ones that I see that are coming in. I actually partner with an organization called Epic Girl that focuses on prevention. It's not necessarily a trafficking organization. We focus on prevention for at-risk um, girls. And these are the girls that you're seeing getting caught up in these situations. And, you know, they look at these people as, oh, this is my homeboy, or this is my older boyfriend. And it's, it's not, you know, the guy who's sitting in the house and has all these women in the house and what you would traditionally think of as, you know, a pimp or something like that. And I think that media really does a disservice, especially when you have films like, you know, the sound of freedom, just coming out here, all huge and everybody's flocking to see this film, but it's like the majority of people who are victimized by exploitation, like that does, they can't identify with that. That was the problem with me, why I really didn't identify with that because I didn't see anybody that had an experience like mine that was identifying as, no, this is actually exploitation. Like what Margie said about if you're under the age of 18, people don't really get that. You don't have to be tied up and bound and, and kept in a basement. Just the fact that someone is paying you for sex, that someone is giving you a place to stay in exchange for sex, that is trafficking, that is exploitation. Um, and so I feel like groups like Ancora, other organizations, the work that, that's being done to really educate on what it is, is important to combat a lot of the other media that comes in. The, I think the only thing I would add is just that I think um, vulnerable youth, and we know that um, as many as one in six, um, according to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, one in six children who are trafficked in the United States are coming out of the foster care system. 
That's why it was so important when I came into the Department of Children's Services to really stand up a unit that was just dedicated to, to serving trafficked youth in the state. Um, and there's a debate internally whether I started this new unit on week one um, after I was sworn in or I waited till week two. Um, but uh, we, we now have specially trained um, case managers who only have trafficked youth on their caseload. Um, and they work specifically with uh, the TBI and with our Tennessee Counter Trafficking Alliance partners. Um, and and the, the three of us work together um, all across the state to serve um, trafficked youth um, in ways that I think are now really intentional. Um, these, uh, these case managers now have over, I think, 350 trafficked youth on their caseload, and it's growing exponentially. And I, I would say in the next 12 months, that number will double, um, given the data that we're seeing. Um, and so I think that um, the only thing that I would add is that I think juveniles get themselves into situations they're sort of lured and manipulated, as Santoya said, into situations that look really um, uh, glamorous and really um, promising and so much better than where they're coming from. And uh, they're boyfriended and they fall in love and they are, um, they're buying into something that they're missing at home. Um, and then the table is turned, the situation changes, and then they can't get out of it. Um, they, it becomes a situation that is extremely scary and extremely traumatic, and in some cases very violent, and there's no escape from it. Um, and once they go down that road, um, it becomes virtually impossible to get out of it. And so that's why it's incredibly important to have organizations like ANCORA um, in Middle Tennessee, Restore Core in West Tennessee, Grow Free in East Tennessee, um, who can serve these, these minors um, over the long term as they heal, um, as we recognize and respond, um, uh, because it does, it's gonna take a long time to heal um, from that kind of exploitation. Um, and, you know, Epic Girl, um, you know, working with the prevention um, out of the Davidson County Juvenile Court also does a great job, but ANCORA is a critical partner for us. The three of us now have um, a, an MOU that uh, uh, for the first time ever, um, and I think uh, it, it's going to be very promising the work that we're going to be able to do together um, as we work with juveniles across the state. The, the, the key, though, I think, um, is in getting them identified as quickly as possible. Um, and that requires training. Um, and, you know, the work of, of Centoya, I think is going to be incredibly important. Um, you know, recognizing um, and identifying juveniles um, as quickly as we possibly can. Um, the longer they stay in exploitation, um, the harder it is to pull them out and the longer the road to, to, to healing becomes. So um, I think um, that that's going to be critically important. So much um, good information there. And I bet that, you know, we probably have attendees that that's the first time they're hearing some of those vulnerabilities. 
I'm curious if Commissioner Quinn, if you would be able to expound on some of the vulnerabilities you mentioned with the um, individuals that are coming out of the child welfare system, like why, why, why are children that are in foster care or um, that have child welfare involvement or in the criminal justice system, why are they more vulnerable maybe than another youth? And then I'd love to go to Centoya after that. Yeah, I think um, kids that are coming into the foster care system or, or who are coming into children's services um, who are brought in through the court system, I think it's important to know that DCS doesn't bring children into custody. The courts bring children into custody. Um, I think that's that's a little myth I can, I can um, dispel. Um, the courts bring children into custody. Um, they bring children into custody because, um, because of neglect, um, because a drug addicted parent, um, because the situation at home is, um, uh, is not the right environment for a child because there's abuse at home, um, because parents can no longer care for their child, um, because persistent conditions at home, um, uh, because the family needs services at home that, uh, where, we need to step in um, and uh, the child can no longer live at home. Um, uh, obviously drug addiction by parents, incarceration by parents. Um, and when children come into custody, it's because the department has been unable to locate a relative caregiver, a kinship caregiver, um, a safety placement. Um, and as a last resort, a child is brought into custody which means a child has no safety net underneath them. Um, and that is a very vulner a vulnerable feeling for a child. Um, but when you think about a child coming into custody under those circumstances, trauma has already occurred and adverse childhood experiences have already occurred. And so they have witnessed potentially addiction and abuse um, and violence in the home potentially um, they may be without parents or have already suffered the loss of a parent. Um, they may have witnessed uh, repeated incidents of domestic violence at home. Um, they may be suffering from mental illness themselves. They may have witnessed um, men mental illness by, you know, with parents um, or caregivers at home. And so all of these things in combination create um, tremendous vulnerabilities you know, for that child. And then to place them in the foster care system, uh, again, where they have no safety net, um, uh, creates tremendous vulnerabilities for a child. Um, and then if you have a child that is, has suffered previous childhood sexual abuse that has gone unmitigated or untreated, you have what's called compounding complex trauma. And uh, that, that then becomes kind of a recipe for disaster. Um, then once that child uh, begins to use drugs to cope as a coping mechanism, um, begins to run as a coping mechanism, um, once a child begins to run, um, they are um, incredibly vulnerable for exploitation. Um, they're going to be exploited once they run. There's there's just no way they're not going to be exploited once they run. Once they become a drug user, um, a substance abuser, um, and a runner, 
there's no way they're, they're almost, there's almost no way they're going to escape exploitation. Yeah. So I think Margie, like she's, she's right on the money there. Um, I would just add, you know, my own experience before I was ever trafficked, I was a 13 year old runaway and I ran away from DCS. I didn't run away from home. So I actually came into custody after getting in trouble at school. So I had some problems with teachers and I was expelled. I ended up getting put into custody for catching a charge there at an alternative school in my county. And what I found was that when I was in DCS custody, I wasn't receiving any kind of care or treatment that would really help me overcome whatever was going on with me. The same for the other kids. We kind of just got there and festered. Um, There were no programs coming in. Um, There was a lot of independent contractors who kind of could just do whatever. There wasn't really a lot of oversight in what was happening. Um, It just, there was no individual treatment plans. It was kind of just, we were just warehoused there. And, you know, that's pretty much continued um, until recently with DCS. Uh, I know I was personally very excited whenever Commissioner Quinn took over for DCS because I was like, yes, uh, finally something is going to be done here because it's really just been horrible, um, just the state of the facilities. I actually go every week into a DCS facility, so I work with the girls there. It's run by a contractor. I see a lot of the problems that are happening, and I know Margie already has a plan to address some of those, and that's going to be really important because that really shapes vulnerability because if you're thinking, okay, well, people who run away, the kids who are running away are most vulnerable. And that's what makes them vulnerable to being exploited. You have to address why they're running away. Why are they going to these places where they're supposed to be healed, where they're supposed to be receiving this care? And why are they running from it? So what strategies need to be employed to make sure that, you know, these are places where they're getting better, where they're getting care. Another issue is a lot of the girls, when they do have access to to groups, so when they are coming to different classes, like Epic Girl, there's others that have come into the facilities as well. It's like they're doing their work, but they get out and they go back to the same environments. Their family has not been doing their work. And so it's, it's just a matter of time before they're back into the same situations. And here you see them back at the facility a month or two later. And so it's like, well, what more can we do for the family as a whole? When we see a child who is going through something, what can we do with the resources that we have? Uh, Can it be in DCS? Can DCS partner with another agency to actually address that issue with the whole family unit? Um, Because putting a kid, you know, back into the same situation is going to lead to the same results nine times out of 10. And that's definitely what I, I tend to see. That's so helpful and really insightful. Thank you for sharing all of that, Centoya. And I think that, you know, we can identify definitely the gaps and the things that we see that lead to vulnerabilities and what we really try to do, which I love about us as a working group and us as a state is we really try to focus also on the protective factors. On So how do we increase those protective factors? How do we wrap those services around um, to ensure that people are cared for? And so I would love to um, talk to Jeremy a little bit about some cases here in Tennessee. You know, we've, we've given some great examples, but what trends are you seeing or what cases is TBI seeing that maybe 
would be helpful for the community to understand so that when we share resources at the end, what are some things that they can be looking for? What are those um, indicators that you would like to share with the community so that when they want to call the Tennessee Human Trafficking Hotline, um, that they have that information? You know, we've we've touched on some kind of general uh, case types that, that you would definitely see. And we are seeing, I think, um, one that Margie talked about at the very beginning is something that, that we're, we're starting to see a little bit more. It's, it's tougher to see, but through our partnerships with DCS and, and some other uh, you know, local agencies uh, on the side of familial trafficking. So you've got a, a family member or someone um, that's exploiting that child in order to receive something. I think uh, one, of the, one of the things that always sticks with me um, is there's nothing more dangerous to a child than a drug addicted mother. Um, I think with that, that's where we're seeing some of the familial uh, uh, cases coming up are these drug addicted parents who, or step parents that are then um, utilizing that child as a form of payment, right, for their drug debts or to get more dope or whatever. And so we've been seeing some more of that. Um, I know a lot of the, the focus on this is uh, sex trafficking, right? But we're, we're definitely seeing uh, labor trafficking pop up more and more, which, you know, it's it, the definition's very similar uh, to sex trafficking. You just take the commercial sex act with some form of labor, right? Um, and then you've got an exchange of something of value and the person that's having to do it, right? Uh, under force fraud or coercion. So we're, we're seeing that uh, some more and more across the state. And then, you know, a little bit to the point that Centoya and Margie were making in the, in the previous uh, question, We've seen specifically several times kids that have gone into group homes or, uh, you know, some type of group facility, right, that uh, are going in to get away from one bad situation. And they're getting linked up with people that have been either previously trafficked or uh, are in the custody there at the same one and kind of told and and manipulated into, hey, when we get out where we can run from this, we've, we've got a really, really good thing going. Uh, and we've seen those girls come out running together oftentimes uh, right back to a trafficker or several traffickers and then coming across the state uh, in, in several instances where while we are looking for that missing kid, we are doing investigative measures where we can almost track by some of the, the commercial sex ads and things that are out there where they're at across the state. And luckily, through uh, regular traffic stops made by, you know, Tennessee Highway Patrol or local agencies that look and go, something's not right here with this person, they then call us. Now, some of those things that they're seeing through the training that they've got, and things that we put out there is, you know, you, you've got an individual that uh, a, a young person that is either going to be inappropriately dressed for the situation they're in, um, 
they're not with family and the, the stories aren't mixing up or aren't um, matched up, I'm sorry, aren't matched up on why, you know, they're on this trip, uh, lots of hotel receipts and everything else. Um, and the potential victim there a lot of times is not going to be addressing those people of authority in what you would consider a normal manner, right? They're going to be kind of protected from them by, by these traffickers and not being able to respond directly. Um, and, you know, it, there's a whole list of these indicators that we have on our website. I believe you guys do too over at Ancora. And, and the thing I always tell people is, yeah, you can read all these and look at them all, but it doesn't mean they have to check every box. I kind of put it up to the spidey sense, you know, especially parents um, and, and police and people in caregiving situations, they're going to have that spidey sense, right? Something that just doesn't sit right. And if you can't get to the bottom of it and it, it's something that just isn't sitting right, that's when we encourage people to call that hotline. Let us figure it out. We're the investigative arm of this, right? Let us dig into it. We don't, we don't want you trying to run after cars and pull people out and that kind of thing. Um, there, there's uh, ways to, to get the people that do that involved, right? So there, there's a whole bunch of indicators that are out there, but it's, it's really all about that kind of, hey, something's not right in this situation. This person's not kind of fitting in. Um, with what we're looking at and the the totality of that circumstance so that's where I put that kind of on some of those indicators I hate to give people just a list to go by because then they'll check all the boxes and say oh hey we didn't check this box and that's not always the case so Super helpful. Thank you so much, Jeremy. And we will have the Tennessee Human Trafficking Hotline shared at the end of the presentation so that you have that for a resource. I'm going to ask one more question before we move on to our Q&A. So, um, but before we do, Sintoya, can you tell us a little bit about what healing looks like? So a survivor experiences a significant amount of trauma during exploitation. Um, what are some of the healing services that an individual might need when they're on their journey? So I can tell you from my personal experience, um, a big part of the healing is going to be discovering your identity. Um, one of the things that was probably the, the biggest contributing factor with me and my own exploitation is like really losing my identity, allowing other people to shape that and what that was, allowing society um, to really shape that. So I discovered my identity in Christ. And that is where my healing comes from. And so that means that, you know, all the shame that I kind of carried around after the fact that was erased. Like, I don't have anything to be ashamed of. I'm not going to take ownership of something that someone else did to me. I'm not going to do that. Um, realizing there's purpose in everything that happened that, you know, it doesn't matter how awful it was. It doesn't matter how much it hurt. Like God can do something beautiful with that. And so really finding a purpose in that pain, that's really important. A lot of people place emphasis on rescue. Oh, we have to get them out of this situation. But what comes after that? You know, there's a whole life ahead of this person that you have to think of um, that comes in, you know, is there going to be other people putting them in these same situations? How are they going to learn how to equip themselves to avoid those situations or to get out of those situations? 
And so really helping them to develop those tools, that's really important. Thinking about financially, if we're just going to be real about it, because that's a huge factor when people are put in binds in situations like that and they think, oh, well, I know this for sure. This is an easy way to pay my bills to get money. Well, what other options do they have? Um, what talents do they have? How can they nurture those talents? Can you teach them the business skills that they need to be successful on their own? Maybe not working for someone. I know God didn't create me to work for anybody else. Um, and so I try to teach my girls to, to figure out what talents has God given you and teach them the business skills that they need to be successful and to build those opportunities for themselves. I think all of that goes hand in hand. You know, you have to think about, well, how can you get them to a place of healing, but how can you help them to sustain that place, to not go back to what they knew before. Um, so that's really important in my eyes. And that's what's really been, you know, the defining factor for me. I love all of that. That's amazing. I think that you hit so many good points of the inward healing, but also the external things that someone needs like employment and financial resources and things like that. So both are so critical. Um, thank you so much for sharing Santoya. That was really helpful. I am going to look at our Q&A box. We have several questions here that I will pose to our panelists. So what can be done to prevent human trafficking? So a lot of folks are saying, you know, that they're learning about this for the first time. Um, would someone like to speak to the prevention side of things? What can we do to prevent trafficking from happening? Um, I'll, I'll start. I think when we first started talking about trafficking um, in the state, uh, we started passing a lot of laws around 2010, 2011, 2012. Um, and the first thing, one of the first things we really started to talk about was um, public awareness and training and education. Um, you first have to understand what it is in order to be able to prevent it. Um, so things like this webinar are, are a huge part of prevention. Um, without without the knowledge to understand what it is, there's no way to prevent it. And so I think for talking about child trafficking, um, we've really got to talk about training and education in the schools um, in a way that's both intentional and meaningful, um, that doesn't scare parents and kids to death, but gives them the tools to protect themselves. Um, and all that I think starts online. Jeremy said it, um, this is an internet-based crime um, in, in large part, but also when you're talking about familial trafficking, um, it also um, can be very insidious um, and can happen within families. Um, but you also have to give tools to kids to be able to find their voice. Um, if kids think this is normal and this is normalized within families, um, you have to be able to give kids um, education to find their voice, to be able to speak their truth. And so the way you do that is by putting prevention training in the schools. Um, we've done that. There's mandatory training now in the schools with teachers, um, across all law enforcement, um, you know, we've been doing that since 2015, 2016 in the state. Um, and so I think when you talk about prevention training, I think Ancora has got some tremendous prevention training they've been doing. I think Epic Girl has some prevention training. I know Centoya is doing a lot of work with young people. I think all of those things in combination 
Um, we just got to get bigger and bigger at doing it. Um, and the public awareness campaigns, I think, probably need to start back up again. Um, but all of those things in combination um, are what we need to do to, and we just need to keep talking about it. Um, I think probably five years ago, folks thought we hit the peak um, of trafficking, but um, I, don't, I don't really think we're there yet. Um, the numbers continue to keep going up and up and up. And that's because demand keeps going up and up. You know, that thing we talked about 20 minutes ago, as long as demand is still there, then we, we still gotta talk about trafficking. And that's the bottom line. Absolutely. Um, and another thing, you know, that I, I like to stress that I feel like is extremely important is we have to do more education on healthy relationships. What is a healthy relationship? What are boundaries? Um, that's my favorite word. And so when I work with the girls, I teach them, um, Stacia, my partner with Epic Girl, she teaches them, has an entire identity curriculum where we talk about healthy relationships, where we talk about boundaries, because that's really important for prevention. The minute you come across somebody that's that's really hinging on those, infringing on those boundaries, that should set off flags in your head. Um, with the work that we're doing with the Glitter Project, the girls, they actually, in addition to putting out facts about trafficking, what trafficking looks like, they're putting words of affirmation out um, for other young people to hear. Because the first time that a young girl hears that she's beautiful, that she's talented, that she's amazing, shouldn't be from a trafficker because they love to tell you all of that. Um, and so they should be hearing that from the community. So if you want to get involved with prevention, not only is it important for you to get involved with groups like Ancora, um, but also like get involved with the kids in, in your community, get involved with them, have those relationships. Someone asked about, you know, red flags. I think that was one of the questions earlier that Jeremy answered, you know, kind of put that out of your mind. Like the biggest red flag, you know, is going to come when you actually have a conversation, you actually get to know these young people and you notice something is different. You have to have that relationship. You have to have that constant um, interaction to realize if something is off. Like I didn't have any kind of tattoos or brands. I wasn't wearing designer clothes or traveling across state lines, but anybody who was really having a relationship with me really had a constant interaction. They would have noticed that something was different, that something was off. And that is the only red flag that you really need. Um, so really get involved, whether it's, you know, in community centers, whether it's in your church, in your school, in your family, your neighbors, like get involved, start having conversations with the kids get involved in their lives and, and try to figure out, you know, what's going on with them and, and notice when things are changing. Incredible. I couldn't agree more. We talk so much about that at Incor about safety and relationship. If that's what we can provide, um, you know, that, that rapport is so, so important um, because that's where you get to know someone and, and really build those trusted, healthy relationships. I'm going to ask one more question. I think it's a really good one um, for, us to be able to know what happens when somebody calls the Tennessee Human Trafficking Hotline. So I have a question from a hospital provider on here that says, hey, when I call the Tennessee Human Trafficking Hotline, what's going to take place? So who's gonna answer? Where do the calls go? Jeremy, would you be able to answer that for us? Absolutely. And this is a great question and plays right into a little bit of one of our initiatives on um, moving towards some more education of our, our frontline workers there at, at hospitals and community health places. So 
Um, you call the hotline, right? Someone's going to answer the phone uh, during the daytime. That's going to be a very experienced person that's going to know exactly everything about uh, what you're about to tell them and be able to direct what uh, your needs are, be able to, to kind of uh, point you in the right direction on what the, that tip's going to require. If you're a healthcare provider and you're saying, hey, I've got someone here, potentially trafficked, so on and so forth, what that um, staffer's going to do then is they're going to contact one of the local agency, agents, uh, human trafficking agents in, in your area. And that person's probably going to, that agent's then going to call you back after you have called the hotline. Um, very quickly. I can almost guarantee that that's a big part of our job and we make sure to do that. So uh, we'll call you back and get someone out there, uh, boots on the ground to be there with you to, to help kind of wade through some of that information. Um, at night, uh, same thing's going to happen, uh, but there might be a little more delay, right? Uh, people sleep at night. Some of us do anyways, not all of us, but um, you're still going to have that same response. The person's going to take your information, get a callback number, and then um, call you back and get some boots on the ground out there for you. We also have task force agents across the state with local uh, local departments that can come help as well. Um, you will still need to uh, report to DCS. Calling the Tennessee Human Trafficking Hotline does not um, does not fulfill the, the mandated reporting guidelines on that. So there will be two calls there. Um, sometimes depending on the situation, we can walk through that with you or take that over to local law enforcement, however that works, but you would still need to, to make your report to, um, DCS as well. Um, but then from there on, on the law enforcement side, that would, start our side. Now, if it's someone that's not looking for law enforcement involvement, that's fine. Um, what, what the staffer would do upon receiving that hotline call would then either put you directly in touch, forward the call, or give um, the information to Ancora or RestoreCore or um, Grow Free Out West, depending on your geographic location, and say, hey, this is, these are the people you need to call. They're going to be right there next to you to help you through this. Kelly obviously can talk more about what that process would look like, but on the hotline side, that's what that would look like. We would direct pass either a warm handoff or, or just provide back depending on the needs of the caller at the time, uh, that resource, and, and then there will be a response appropriate with that as well. Did that answer all of that, I think? Yes, that was so helpful. Yes, that answered the question. And I'm so glad you touched on the DCS and reporting as well. Uh, I will also add that on our end, we also have a 24-7 response, just like law enforcement. So as victim service providers, we are there. We are in hospital rooms. We are at the law enforcement station. We are out in the community. We are helping facilitate safe shelter um, so we absolutely will respond 24-7 as well. And our phone number um, was at the beginning of the slides, and I'll make sure that it's included in our follow-up communication. 
To wrap this up, I'd like to close by giving a call to action, some ways that community members can get involved in this important work. So I'll start with Suntoya. Can you share with us a little bit about the Glitter Project? And then I can share a little bit about Encora and ways that folks can get involved with us. Yeah, so the Glitter Project is something that came about years ago when I was still incarcerated after I was first discovering, you know, what trafficking really is and just really felt this passion to educate other people. Um, GLITTER stands for the Grassroots Learning Initiative on Teen Trafficking, Exploitation, and Rape. Uh, once I was released, I joined forces with Stacia from Epic Girl, and we've been really adamant about this being a youth-led initiative. And so a public awareness initiative, talking about trafficking, talking about exploitation that includes gangs, because gangs exploit kids all the time. Uh, most of the kids that did I serve, they've been exploited by them in some form. Um, and just really talking about what it is and really coming up with prevention strategies. And so they finally come to a point where they feel like they're ready to roll it out. And so this month, well, next month, August, we'll actually start leaving glitter rocks um, with little notes that have facts, that have words of encouragement, words of affirmation. And also we're gonna include the, the human trafficking hotline number on there that we're just gonna leave all around town. Um, because one of the things that, you know, is really important is getting the information to the people who need it. I would have never seen that commercial if I wasn't sitting in a prison cell looking at TV all day with nothing else to do. And so getting the information into the hands of the people who need to know it. And so if you are around town somewhere and you see one of these glitter rocks and these notes somewhere, we just encourage you, you know, to share it on your social media. You can use the hashtag and then take that and leave it somewhere else. Um, pass it on and we just are going to see what happens with this. We are really hoping that this is going to become the official um, awareness kind of um, initiative for Tennessee. And so we're just going to see how it shapes up, but it's all their brainchild. It's all they're doing and it's finally come to fruition. It's going to come out in August though. So. Super exciting. I love hearing that. And I love that idea of how encouraging it is and pointing people to the hotline. That's wonderful. Here are three practical takeaways from this conversation. One, you can educate yourself about human trafficking. And you can easily do this by listening to all of the episodes of this podcast or by subscribing to our newsletter at AncoraTN.org. Two, you can invest in survivors. You can actually support survivors as they heal from trafficking by being a monthly donor through Ancora Tennessee's Hands of Hope Society, for as little as $5 a month, you can provide sustainable support as a survivor reclaims and rebuilds their life. Go to ancoratn.org slash hands of hope or use the link in the show notes to learn more. And three, you can save the human trafficking hotline phone number for Tennessee and share it with others. That number is 855-558-6484. Hey, one last thing. Tickets are now on sale for Voices of Freedom, our most anticipated event of the year. Join us at the famous Loveless Cafe in Nashville on September 15th for an evening of great food, live entertainment, and hope building as we raise funds to invest in the lives of human trafficking survivors. I'll be there emceeing, and I can't wait to see you. Get your tickets at ancoratn.org slash VOF2023. For someone like me and Ancora TN, I'm Leslie Eiler-Thompson. Thanks for listening.